Hi, I'm Tom Flynn. And I'm Lori Feathers. And welcome to Lost in Redonda. Hello, and welcome to season two of Lost in Redonda. Um, as you heard from the introduction, I'm Tom Flynn, but uh, with me, as always, is Lori Feathers. Hi, Lori. Hi, Tom. I'm excited about season two. I am too. Um, I I don't think when we first came up with this that we had any idea that there would be like a seasonal format to it, but with the kind of project idea that we're dealing uh, with Javier Marias's work in the first season now, um, and now what we're doing next, it kind of makes sense that it has that little bit of a, a that structure, that that format to it. I think. Yeah, and as as with season one, we're going to be breaking up our um, deep look into the work of one author with some backlist episodes as well. Yeah, and for this season, we will be diving into the work of Muriel Spark, a writer whom I've not really read any of at all. I'm not sure that you've read very much of her either, right, Lori? I've only read The Prime of Miss Jean Brody. Um, I led a book club discussion on that. I love that book. It's so good. And I can't wait till we get to it. But I'm also looking forward just to reading everything else. She wrote a lot of novels. They're shortish novels, but it's still an impressive body of work. And since this is a writer that neither one of us has a ton of background in, I think it'll be, it'll be, it'll be interesting. It'll be a different kind of uh, deep dive from the first season with us both, uh, with the exception of uh, the prime. Um, I'm just going to call it that, the prime. I think that's a, that's I a like good it. shorthand, a good shorthand for it. Um, other than that, we'll both be kind of well coming in fresh to to each one. So um, we'll have the kind of basic uh, first few episodes schedule posted um, on the Substack. Um, and across social media, but um, we'll be handling Mural Sparks' work uh, chronologically by by, pub, by publication. So no larger theme to it. No, these are the important ones. These are the lesser novels. We're just going to be kind of taking them, at least at the outset. Uh, we changed our minds with how we approached Marius uh, midway mid- midstream in the first season. So maybe that'll happen again here. So no promises there. But at the outset, our plan is to uh, to attack her body of work. Um, uh, by uh, by publication order. We have been known to switch horses in midstream, but um, that is our intent right now, just to do it um, chronologically, uh, book by book by book. Yeah. I mean, it is rather our podcast, so we can kind of kind of do, <laughs> do what we want on that, on that front. Whatever's keeping us happiest is probably best for the podcast overall. Um, but kicking off this season, uh, we are starting off with a backlist pick. And uh, today we are talking about, uh, and this is uh, Lori's suggestion, uh, Chronicle of the Murdered House by Lucio Cardoso, uh, translated by Margaret Joel Costa and Robin Patterson, and uh, published in the U.S. by Open Letter Books. So, Lori, kind of like with the Marie NDA book, um, what the hell is this novel? My God. This novel, though, um, it, it, it has, I think, a shock factor reminiscent of Marie Ndiaye, but... It's very straightforward. There's there's not a lot of ambiguity and 
kind of like what's true, what's imagined. I mean, there is some of that because we have some pretty unreliable types in the in the story, but it's basically taken from the point of view of someone who's gone back years later and wants to uh, document what happened to this once great uh, country house in Brazil. And so just starts uh, going through diaries, taking reports from people who interacted with the family, um, different witnesses, and it's just kind of compiling or trying to compile, I would say, the the contamination, spoilization, rot, and total destruction of a house and a family. Yeah, that's a rather succinct way uh, of putting it. Um, podcast episode over. Um, <laughs> no, it, it's a really wild novel, I find. Um, it it has so many of the hallmarks of uh, a melodrama or a soap opera to it with family members hating each other, the one reclusive brother who no one speaks of and largely disappears for, I, I mean, he's gone for like, what, 300, 400 pages in the novel. Um, we meet him relatively early on. He emerges briefly once again, and then he's just gone until the end, but plays such a fantastic role in how all of this resolves itself as much as there is any resolution. But yeah, the the one brother marries a woman that he brings in that no one approves of, but is it really disapproval or is it something else? And there's lots of sex and lots of very weird sex. And it, it it's a lot. It's a lot, a lot, a lot. I mean, it's, it's funny. It's, there's a way in which it's, it's almost like, maximalist and like how over the top it is but there is such a control and a restraint in the prose i mean it's beautifully written but you get the feeling that cardoso if he'd wanted to could have gone could have pushed this into some like even more extreme places with just how he would could have written it i i think i think it was meant to be a bit funny. Um, in the introduction, Benjamin Moser talks about it being campy. Um, and it does feel, um, I think he calls it campy in the same time he's talking about it being a little bit echo of Faulkner. And so there's, there's all of these very Gothic, a lot of heavy religious, sin and redemption and all of those kind of things that can make a really kind of creepy old house even creepier. And and so we've got that, but it is exaggerated to such an extent that I think, I think it was meant to, to, he was having a little fun with us, I think, Lucia Cardoza. And I think you're absolutely right. It's the language that saves it. I mean, it feels so over the top, but yet um, it's so beautifully written and so descriptive. And I think the characters are really well drawn. The emotions feel real so that you're not just snickering and giggling the whole time. I mean, you really, it's a page turner. 
Oh yeah, I mean it has incredible momentum to it. It flies. Um, a lot of the characters feel like it's just a pouring forth of their thoughts, their emotions. So, and, and it just it whisks you right along with them from point to point, almost, almost to the point where you have to kind of slow yourself down. I always I had to slow myself down to make sure that I wasn't totally accepting every single thing they said um i mean i don't think that to me the characters lie at any point but there is definitely uh withholding that takes place throughout and some pretty important facts are withheld until until the very end yeah it's 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 also i mean just on the topic of like how it's the writing itself i mean as you said it's it's someone going back and collecting all these documents but they're all told from a first person perspective but just from different folks associated members of the family people from town uh the local priest the local doctor the local pharmacist um and each one has such a distinct voice and such a distinct way of presenting themselves uh the doctor sounds like an old country doctor someone who'd been who'd been tending to the people in this area from you know the the lowliest you know, hand at the farm all the way up to the folks at this estate when they deign to call upon him. And he has just such a old fashioned stilted way of presenting himself and presenting his tale um, versus the pharmacist. Who's a little bit, who's more transactional and more sort of like uh, of the, of the moment in time, his, his commentary always reflects back on, you know, what's going on in the world. You almost get the sense that he's always seeing the worst things that are happening and preparing for it, um, which often leads to him having the exact thing that another character needs at a particular moment in time. I think that the one person that we don't hear from in this book that I would have loved to hear him talk about this family, but he plays a plays a kind of overshadowing role in the book is the Baron, who is this guy from Portuguese royalty that lives in the town. And the one brother in particular, Demetrio, is very keen on trying to impress the Baron and always wants the Baron to, you know, come by um, the house and to... um, to socialize and he wants he wants the baron to kind of i think give him give him in the house like the improper and like the the import that he he feels that they deserve but the baron is just elusive and doesn't really i think apparently want much if anything to do with this very weird family that undercurrent of always preparing for when the Baron will come and the Baron never comes or rather the Baron does come once, but every year I I mean, I just read it and I'm forgetting exactly what time of year it is. Every year there's this idea that this would be the time when the Baron would make his visit and he never arrives. And I'm sort of reflecting on on what you were saying about the, the, the campiness and some of the humor and there's absolutely a ton of camp and it is very funny at times, but that's the sort of like, there's almost a slapsticky element that could have been introduced to the novel a little bit more heavily if Cardoso had wanted to with this uh, constant looming idea of the Baron. But because this family, the Menezes, are so broken <laughs> in very fundamental ways, it instead comes across, as you said, as a shadow, as a, as a looming threat. Um, 
I initially thought you were going to say that the person that we don't hear from uh, really is uh, is actually the older brother, Demetrio. Um, uh, I think the Baron might have had some interesting things to say about the Menezes and the town in general, but Demetrio and how he functions and how he thinks and how he affects so much of what t- the of what takes place in his family's life it would have been interesting to hear how he would have been presented like what his voice would have sounded like so should should i kind of try to in a nutshell explain for our listeners kind of what's what's going on here to set the table up for them yeah absolutely i think this is a i think this is our usual point about 13 minutes in. We've done the, the privies and, <laughs> and, 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 and potentially what some appetites. So now we can get into some of the, the meat, and, meat and potatoes. Yeah, we get a, a little over exuberant sometimes. And then it's like, oh, yeah, I, I, dang, people need to know what, what's, what this is about. So um, so the Chronicle of the Murdered House, the, the Murdered House is a place called the Shakara. And it is in the outskirts of this um of this small town in Brazil. And it's home to three grown sons of the late Donna Malvina Menezes, uh, Demetrio, Valdo, and the recluse, uh, Timoteo. Demetrio, who's uh, the eldest, um, manages what little remains of the family's fortune alongside his wife, Anna, with whom he shares a passionless marriage. In contrast to the bland Anna, Valdo's young wife, Nina, who didn't grow up in the area, but he kind of brings her back from a trip to Rio, is a vibrant beauty who owns a hyperactive romantic imagination. She loves all kinds of fancy things, and uh, this drives Demetrio crazy because he's a real penny pincher, and uh, admittedly, the family seems to be fallen on hard times. But I think that it's principally the story of Nina and the house that this story uh, kind of talks about. And what I think is really interesting, Tom, is how we see kind of the degradation of both Nina and the house kind of happening simultaneously, would you say? Yeah. I mean, Nina's arrival at the house is something of a... I mean, it's a wedge among um, the folks who live there in many respects. But in in introducing her, the fallen down nature of the house, that some of the windows don't open properly anymore, that they can't afford to fix the wood, um, all sorts of elements to that, that, that the pasture land that they um, have, they have to rent out, but they can't even rent out most of it because it's uh, dry and barren and nothing can grow there any longer. That seems to be brought into sharper relief among the members of the Menezes clan, who all seem to have this idea of like who they are and what it means to be a Menezes and what it means as far as Demetrio is concerned and kind of what he enforces upon the others largely is to be reserved, to be removed, and to really be fundamentally cut off from the rest of the world. They are supposed to be separate on their hill, looking down upon everyone else. And I mean, there are points where the doctor reflects on what that family, the Menezes, has meant to the town and kind of gives them at times suggests that he's giving them some slack for some of their behavior because of how important they've been. Um, while others clearly, I mean, the pharmacist in particular exemplifies sort of a, 
a newer, younger person in town who just sees them as haughty and, you know, weird, weird, very weird. It's, it's the rigidity in many respects that I think, and that cut off nature that in many ways proves to be their downfall. Um, they can't think of ways to expand or just maintain their fortune. They can't think of ways to be a part of the world. And interestingly, it's the, uh, the local priest who kind of most explicitly uh, reflects on that as the novel moves along. Going back kind of to the beginning, one of my favorite scenes is when uh, Nina arrives, newly married. She marries Valdo sight unseen. Um, she's never been to where the house is, but Valdo arrives after the wedding to the house before Nina and Nina is delayed and comes a few days later. And she really acts like she's been sold a bill of goods. I think that, you know, she's heard stories from Valdo about, you know, this old grand family that he's part of and this manor house that they, um, that they own and the respect they have of, of the community. And she gets there and well, first of all, she's never lived outside of a city before. And so she finds, even when she gets off the train in town, that like it's dusty, it's boring, the people are not attractive, they're unglamorous. And then she comes to the house itself and, you know, sees pretty instantly that, you know, it's things are pretty austere. And not at all what she kind of imagined her life was going to be like living in this house. Yeah, they have a dinner, uh, Valdo, Nina, Anna, and uh, Demetrio. And Demetrio, like, cruelly uh, goes to some pains to say that they don't have money, that the house is falling apart, that well, were, you, were you promised riches and wealth and land? Because we don't really have any of those things. And Valdo tries to argue back against it. I mean, there, it's, Demetrio is very austere. I mean, let's not even use the word austere. He is severe. He is humorless. He is just barely a person. He is so such hard angles, it feels like. Valdo has some of that in him, but also certainly like he sees this beautiful woman and convinces her to marry him so quickly and tells her all about this wonderful place they're going to live. I mean, there's still a little bit of the, the romantic in, in him. And it's as the novel moves along, there are ways in which it feels like Valdo becomes even more both those things, much more serious, but at the same time has an, an inner emotional life that, it's very much suggested Demetrio might not have. Yeah. The circumstances of Demetrio's marriage to his wife, Anna, are... Are so messed up. Oh, God. Yeah. I think he picks her out um, from the village when she's like five years old or something. And she tells the parent... He tells the parents, you know, um, when your daughter comes of age, I'm going to marry her. And then she grows up knowing that, oh, I'm just being you know, I'm just kind of being groomed to, to be Demetrio's wife. And, 
she's a very, at least until we get to know her a little bit, much further in the book, she just seems like, I don't know, like that old, that the woman in the Norman Rockwell painting or something, like just very dour and, and mad and mean, but totally like unemotive. I mean, I think even at the outset, she is doesn't even come across as mad or mean. She's just sort of in the background. Like she just isn't, she is not a character as such. Uh, and as the novel mo- moves along and we get, you know, much more of her take and her involvement in the <laughs> the action of the tale, um, she is far, far <laughs> from a background character. Yeah, but uh, also I think the fact that she shows zero warmth toward Nina. Well, they, they just, they, they describe that she, I mean, that while not having been born in Menezes, by the time Nina gets there, uh, Anna is in Menezes. She is rigid. She is reserved. She has no, seemingly no interest in the outside world. Um, she has, I mean, and it, it almost suggests a certain way that she could almost be their sister as much as she is Demetrio's wife, um, which Sounds like an awful way to, to 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 live in a marriage, I would think. But there we are. Yeah, I think that um, I wrote an article about this book at one time, and I um, described Demetrio's kind of choosing Anna like someone choosing um, an unripe banana, knowing that eventually it would be ripe and and serve as a perfectly serviceable, but very boring snack. Um, it's kind of like the way he picks, <laughs> he picks Anna. I'm putting that, I was, I, I was already going to put that into the show notes, but yeah, that's from a review you wrote from uh, <laughs> Full Stop, which I found when I was doing a little bit of uh, searching online. And um, Lori, that is literally word for word what you wrote in that article. So well done. I mean, it's, it's incredibly apt, but uh, good memory for uh, what you wrote uh, back in 2017. Um, yeah, I usually can't pull something like the banana out like I like I did on that one, but um, but yeah, it's it's really kind of gross the way he just like chooses her as as the wife, and she just kind of dutifully assumes the role. Well, I think I think also though that that, that grossness is also sort of at the at the co- like the root of what's wrong with this house and what's wrong with this family is that it's things are done in such a manner, like complete, like unfeeling, unthinking of what the other person might want or, you know, what Anna's aspirations could have been had she not been, you know, designated from the time that she could, you know, (laughs) she was a kindergartner and her future was selected for her. Right. I mean, that's just, that is at, yeah, that is at the core of what is harming this family and the people that come into contact with it and what Nina upsets so incredibly um, by her arrival, by her presence, and and in some ways, like, by her beauty. I mean, everyone states outright that she is perhaps the most beautiful person they have ever seen in their lives. That, like, it's not, it's not that she's especially good-looking. She is a shock to the system and she's absolutely a shock to the, the household and the family system um, that exists um, at Shakara. Why don't we talk about uh, Timoteo? Because um, Anna kind of 
he's locked up in his room, um, uh, secluded. Timoteo's a cross-dresser and seen as totally abhorrent and aberrant by his other brothers. And so they just won't have anything to do with him. But he makes it clear to Betty, um, the housekeeper, that he really wants to meet Anna, to talk to Anna. And she, I'm sorry, to Nina, yes, excuse me. Um, and so she complies um, and goes to, to to meet him pretty early on. And they kind of, they kind of form this weird bond. I don't, he's obviously enthralled by her beauty, at like, like the other two brothers, but I kind of think that she maybe feels some, I don't know, camaraderie with him just because she, she knows that she's going to not fit in here. And he certainly seems to not fit in with his brothers. Yeah. She has a conversation with Betty um, at one point um, after meeting with Timoteo and I mean, Betty's asking like, in some ways kind of suggesting like, well, are you guys friends? And Nina's very ambivalent about that. Um, and basically says like, Timoteo is mad, you know, and not, and not because he wears his mother's gowns and jewelry, but because he wants to only, the world only exists within his room for him. He is only existing within his particular, like, elliptical bubble. And that's all he's interested in doing. And so while he may he may be a good person for her to like interact with because he's different from the rest of the clan. I don't think Nina really sees him as someone that offers her much beyond that other than asking him, you know, or making a pact with him that uh, if she should be the one to die first, that he would put uh, violets on her coffin um, because violets were her, her favorite flower. Should we introduce Alberto, the gardener? Yeah, I think bringing up the flowers is a good moment to do that. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, and this is and this is where this is like soap opera. So we've laid out this, you know, stiff. I mean, there's like <laughs> this would be like if Downton Abbey had been dropped into uh, into Brazil, except that uh, there it was a smaller family and there were fewer servants, and most of the family were just kind of terrible people more so than maybe some of them were i don't know i didn't really actually watch down navi it's just a, a, a reference point that popped into my head at one point but yeah so now now in the soap opera comes in the sexy gardener so alberto yeah i don't know whether i was thinking downton abbey or maybe the adams family a but, little bit of both. but probably even something a, a much more macabre um and and disagreeable than the Adams family. Yeah. So Alberto is this young, I think 19, 20 year old guy, um, for some reason working as a gardener at this weird house. Um, they've got quite a bit of land and he is one of the people that just becomes, well, I don't know if you could say becomes, I think he's almost instantly captivated by Nina you know, the most beautiful thing he's ever seen. And at one point he tries to make his feelings known to her. And as he's doing that, uh, Demetrio witnesses this potentially intimate moment. Nina claims that, you know, 
she didn't provoke his advances. She didn't know that he was going to kind of get down on bended knee and profess his love for her. But Demetrio, I don't know whether Demetrio isn't buying it, but he he definitely sees that he can use this episode to his advantage to try to to create an even more pronounced wedge between Valdo and Nina. And that's pretty much what it does. It's stated a little bit more explicitly towards the end of the novel, but it's very clear almost from the beginning that uh, Demetrio wants her gone. Um, Whatever it takes, she needs to no longer be there. And the various whys of that are discussed by different characters it's tricky. This is a tricky one to get into because of sort of the uh, soap operatic, melodramatic, um, just wildness of what takes place um, throughout it. But there are, are a lot of deceits and half truths that slowly unveil themselves uh, until you have a very full picture of it in about the last 50 years. I mean, it's almost a 600 page book. And in the last 50 pages, the amount of denouement that takes place. Uh, I felt shell-shocked afterwards with how many how many facts and truths were, were brought to light all, all in that span, having, having already raced through 550 some odd pages to then get hit with that was, was a lot. Yeah, I think you read it really fast, which is a testament to what a page turn is. Yeah, no, is. I mean, I, I flew through it. It's it's funny having um, read so much, having read the Marius before. I could actually get through some of the novels a little bit faster because I just had a general sense of what it was doing and the rhythm of his writing. Um, when I first read any of his books, I I couldn't. Um, and some of the other some of the other books we read, I, I just you know I don't feel like you could fly through them. This one was just a sprint, which was great and very heady and had a quite the high associated with it when I would tear myself away to go make dinner or what have you. But um, it, it definitely, <laughs> it definitely created quite this, quite the state. Um, but yeah, so Alberto, Alberto is seen declare is apparently either declaring his love or that they, but to Demetrio's eyes, it was reciprocated. Like he felt that Nina was, he, that Alberto was on bent knee saying how much he loved her and he was, and she was not rejecting him. And that even, to Demetrio's mind, even to be in that position is a disgrace. Like she shouldn't even have been in the garden alone with the gardener in the first place. Like that's not a place she should be inside the house with all the windows closed, like the rest of them slowly, like Anna, like Anna slowly fading into the wallpaper until you become the wallpaper itself. Um, this is why Timoteo is so offensive to him. It's not, it's not just that he, you know, that he wears their mom's clothes and all that. It's that he doesn't fit what he thinks uh, Amenizes should be, and maybe also because Demetrio himself doesn't doesn't actually fit what Amenizes perhaps should be. Well, I guess there are when you were talking about why Demetrio wants Nina gone. You know, I can think of like three possible reasons off the top of my head. One, he's he's immensely attracted to her and he's afraid of his feelings. Two, he's afraid she's going to like spend through whatever money, little money that they still have left. And three, I think is what you're getting at. And that's the sense that I get as well. It's that she has disrupted this tranquil, what Demetria would think is equilibrium of the place. You know, nothing is ever supposed to change at this place. It's supposed to just, um, 
it's it's kind of like they're living in a tomb or a, or a sarcophagus or a vault and they're just they're just biding their time and until they die and they're not supposed to have lead interesting lives they're not supposed to become attached to people they're not supposed to take interest in their community or let the community kind of share um their lives with them they're just like entombed in this in this house and you know i think one big theme of the book is that that kind of entombment is like what brings them down i think you're absolutely right i mean their 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 role in demetrio's mind is to be a monument a monument to to what it is to be a menezes and her presence her interest and also frankly i mean he he says at one point that demetrio that uh, I think at the same dinner where he lays out some of the facts of the case to Nina, that um, they're supposed to be the last, gen- in his mind, they're the last generation of Menezes. There aren't supposed to be any, this is it. This is the end of the line. The family should not, will not continue after this. And her presence also is a bit of a threat because it seems pretty obvious that he and uh, Anna will never have children. But what if Nina and Valda do? What if the family line continues? What does that what does that then mean to their finances, to their status as a monument? The idea of a child running through the halls of that, as you put it, tomb, uh, is is strange, is 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 a worrisome, a worrisome consideration. And Nina gets pregnant. Um Nina gets pregnant, uh, and this it's it's the way that um the various chapters are told from different perspectives um as letters as reports as memoirs kind of plays with the time a little bit and how things are like related back um someone else's involvement in a scene that we hadn't seen previously uh you know layers on top some of some of the the action the the motion of it um but Alberto's, you know, declaration of love that uh, Demetrio witnesses um, is while Nina is pregnant. Um, and among the many effects of this are that eventually Valdo uh, attempts suicide, uh, shoots himself and barely misses his heart. And while he's recuperating, Nina leaves. You know, she's it, it, she'd made noise about leaving previously, but at this point she she is done and she takes off for Rio, leaving everyone else behind, but while still pregnant with the next generation of uh, Menezes. And when within the motion of, of the novel, um, Anna is the one that goes to find her, to bring her back, but instead comes back only with uh, a boy, a baby boy. Uh, whom um, Nina had named. The boy's name was supposed to be Alberto uh, after uh, the father of Dimitro Valdo and Timoteo, but instead um, comes back with a boy (laughs) that Nina named Andre. And Nina stays away for 15 years after that. Yeah. Why do you think Dimitrio allowed Nina to go fetch the baby? Because I would, you know, there is some intimation that he felt threatened because Valdo was going to have an heir and Demetrio was not. By law or by custom, uh, 
the heir is actually the one that would be in charge. So while he is in charge as the older brother, once the heirs of age, um, he would displace uh, Demetrio. Yeah. I, I think it's in some ways laid out as, in the early going as something that he feels that Valdo almost needs or Valdo works works on him about. I mean, I think also we want to get into like how Demetrio sees the world. The idea of a Menezes out in the world not being raised as a Menezes is probably some as much as he doesn't want the kid to exist, the kid exists. So it'd be rather anathema to him to have a Menezes be anything other than what he thinks Amenizes ought to be. Yeah, I mean I think I think that's probably I mean Demetrio is someone who's so thoroughly who is so mixed up ultimately. He has these ideas of who he's supposed to be or what his family is supposed to be, but they're not that cuz they can't afford to be that thing anymore. So instead he's decided that they should just sort of die functionally. They should just sort of fade away. But that but that runs crossways to the idea of being a family in the first place. Um, and I think that's also playing and preying upon him. He's just, there are a lot of very interesting characters in this novel. There are, are a lot of very odd and uh, odd people making questionable choices. Um, Demetrio is probably the most broken of all the characters in the novel. Um, he's, he's by the end, described as as by his brother as being a like a shriveled shadow like he's he barely appears human by the end of the novel and i think we can get into this because this is how the novel the novel opens with uh nina's death and the first people we really meet are nina and andre and it's there's some ambivalence um somewhat and for the first i don't know five pages but it's very much intimated that nina nina is dying but that she and Andre were lovers. And that's how it starts. And then it takes us kind of, it takes us back to the beginning to how, how we get to this point. Yeah. There's not a lot of easing us into incest. No. Um, it's just kind of there um, from, uh, from the jump. But yeah, I guess maybe we should say a little bit about what Nina's been up to for 15 years while Andre's been growing up in the tomb. And um, she's been basically living off the charity of her father's friend, the colonel. And we hear some some reports from the colonel, too, in, in this narrative. Um, but she starts writing to Valdo, and she starts saying, you know, um, I'm... I really don't have two pennies to rub together. I'm, I'm, I'm living in, in poverty. I need money. And Valdo ignores her, basically. And it's only when she kind of professes to be ill that Valdo, I guess, takes sympathy on her and decides uh, to let her come back. I don't think she ever unless I'm misremembering, I don't think she ever like professes, I really want to see my son. Um, no. I, I've never, I've never laid eyes on my son. I miss my son. He's, you know, he's my, you know, my child. She just wants, it, it, I thought it was one of the more interesting points of the book is when they talk about her desire to come back um, because she writes these longish letters to Valdo and 
she weirdly misses the place, it seems, after 15 years. Now, at least that's what she what she says, whether she's just trying to get back because she can't she can't support herself. But I kind of got the sense that maybe she's romanticized what kind of place this was <laughs> and what kind of a time she had there in the brief one or two years that she lived there before she got run off. Yeah, I mean, Valdo reflects on that as well, um, talking about how different she is in many respects when she comes back. And how, I mean, that it's been 15 years. They've both, they've both grown older. They've changed. They've had, you know, different experiences. Um, and Valdo at this point, this is where he seems much more, he seems much more of a person at this point. Not a, There's almost something juvenile about how he initially approached being married to Nina and bringing her back. And the fact that he wasn't as upfront or had deluded himself as to the nature of the family's fortunes um, and, 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 and in his describing them to Nina, but no, he seems much more serious, but in some ways able to emotionally engage with who Nina is and her return. But when she comes back, he is very sensitive to the fact, and maybe in the way that Demetria was the first time she came there, of how much her presence is changing things. And that's mostly because of the change that comes over Andre with his mother's return. Andre seems like a actually relatively normal kid, all things considered, when we first meet him before Nina's return. Um, or at least as normal as you're going to be growing up in the tomb and them attempting to raise him the way that a menaziz and a man of his station should be raised with some sporting activities and hunting and things of that nature. But very little affection. I, the only affection that he really gets in his life is from Betty, the housekeeper. Um, you know, I don't, he, he obviously doesn't have any type of relationship with his father um, other than the most, you know, kind of formal, basic, very unemotional type of relationship. And it is kind of interesting, you know, he's kind of, as you would if, you know, if you were raised by one parent and you knew your other parent was was out there living life and you've never even seen a picture. They had no pictures of, of Nina. Uh, they never talked about Nina at dinner. Um, she was just like a persona non grata. And then out of the blue, Valdo tells him that um, she's coming back because she's very ill. And he asks um, Andre to go away for two days hunting <laughs> rather than wait there uh, to meet his mother for the first time at 15 years of age. When Alberto was first introduced, he it, it stated that he was the gardener and he was 19 or so, but that he'd been working on the estate since he was a boy. That basically he'd been dropped off and raised there and raised to be the gardener. That was his role. It's very clear that Betty does not seem to have any life beyond her service to this estate. Um, and in some ways, that's repeating itself with Andre. He's on the estate. You don't get the sense that he goes into town very much, goes to school there or anything of that nature. So you combine the idea of his mother returning. And when she arrives back, uh, she is still just as beautiful as she was when she left. She might be a little bit older. Um, her illness that eventually kills her uh, is not fully in force yet. So it hasn't, but even then, up until the moment she dies, 
it doesn't necessarily strip her of her beauty per se. It's maybe not entirely shocking that a young man raised uh, in isolation would have a lot of mixed up feelings the first time he encounters his mother and for her to be the most beautiful person he's ever seen in the world. I don't know. I'm trying to give Andre a little bit of an out here for what comes next. Yeah, no. And his mother, she totally confuses him. Constantly. Whether intentionally or whether intentionally or not. I mean, she's, she's affectionate to him, but I mean, and Andre doesn't know the story about Alberto, the gardener. And so, because Alberto, the gardener, I don't know whether we mentioned it, but Alberto, the gardener is no longer working there because he's dead. Right. Yo, sorry. We, we missed that part after, <laughs> I mean, after it's after Nina leaves that Alberto uses the, um, so when, when, when Nina leaves after Valdo has attempted suicide, she goes and confronts him and, almost suggests that he did this in, in some no small part to try and keep her there, but it's not going to work. And she throws the gun out the window into the garden and Alberto finds the gun and Alberto kills himself with the same gun that Valdo attempted to, to kill himself. Yeah. So Alberto's not there, <laughs> there any longer. And I'm quite certain that Andre would never have been told about a member of the help killing themselves on the grounds, you know? But yet I think the reader knows that when Nina is kind of like looking at Andre and she's talking to Andre. Um, Andre describes that it felt like she was seeing him, but not really seeing him. And like, she was what she was talking past him. Um, like she was kind of talking to him, but as though like she was also thinking about someone else when she was talking. I mean, clearly she's, she's, he's reminding her of Alberto. Um, I think the, you know, and so, and so she does inappropriate, inappropriate things, uh, says things and makes suggestions that are just very weird from the get go with Andre and Andre's had no socialization. Um, he doesn't know how that act interact really with anyone, let alone a beautiful woman. And he's 15 years old and he's totally unequipped to deal with someone who I think you could say is a siren like Nina. Well, and also what does it mean to actually be like to be a mother, like within a social context? I mean, he hasn't been raised with a mother. She's, she has never been a mother to him and any of that. I mean, they're, they're barely a family. I mean, they are, they are the Menezes, but would you actually really think of them? as being like familial or filial among, uh, among Demetrio, Demetrio, uh, Valdo and Tim, I mean, Timoteo, they banished. I mean, so family and those sorts of connections mean very little against the weight of what it is to be, you know, the, the monument, the, the tomb that is the Menezes, uh, clan in, in this falling apart house that they live in. Maybe we should mention how, Timoteo has changed in Nina's absence and what that means. When Nina returns, she does see Timoteo. And when she goes into his room and you get the sense that the windows and that the only time the doors open is when food is brought to him or, or when I mean, he, he uses his inheritance to give money to the staff to bring him alcohol. 
Um, he's been drinking himself slowly to death um, since he's been uh, cast out of the family, though not cast out of the home. Um, again, probably because Menezes can't just be wandering about the world. But when she sees him again, I mean, he's massive. He was already putting on weight when she first met him, and now he's almost inhuman in the way she describes him and the way that the way that he's dressed and the way he moves and just the look in his eyes. Like he's become, I wouldn't say bestial, but there's whatever madness he had or whatever he was, um, he is much further down that path than he was the last time she she saw him. He's something he's something very, very othered here at this point. So do you think that he's trying to disfigure himself in order to bring further shame on his brothers. I don't know if he can even see himself. Like, I think I, I I get, just get the sense that he's someone who is so, so removed from the world that it almost doesn't even matter. I'm not even sure of the last, the last time he like looked at himself and saw anything other than what he wanted to see in that moment. It's a really, it's a really gross portrait um, that um, Cardoza paints of this Timoteo 15 years on. And, uh, you know, you can hardly see his eyes because his face is so fat. He can barely move because he's so heavy. He's still trying to, like, squeeze in to his mother's old ball gowns and party dresses and glitter and sparkles and feather boas and things. But, but really it's just kind of like scraps of those clothes. Right. Because he keeps, he keeps bursting, he's bursting the seams. He wears her necklaces as bracelets because just they wouldn't work as a necklace any longer, but they will fit around his wrist. I mean, it's just, there's something, there's something very broken being expressed there, I think. Um, And not, and I don't think it's because he is a cross-dresser. I don't think it's anything like that. It's much more manifestations of brokenness within him that, that this is, in some ways, I think it's like a pushback against what this idea, the rigidity of what the Menezes is supposed to be that that is taking place there. Um, and it's also just, you know, discomfort in his own body. I think we're approaching... and. In the first season, we kind of ignored the whole spoiler warning thing. Um, I think we're fast approaching the point where we need to get into some spoiler territory. So I think before we do that, before we either warn listeners that we're about to tell them some spoilers or we just like, you know, pull up short and, and don't do the spoilers. I'm interested, Tom, because um, I know that you were a theology student, I think, right, in an undergrad? Yeah, I was. And so I'm wondering about how you perceive Father Justino's whole kind of explanation about what's wrong with this family and why this is happening to them. Um, I like Father Justino. I He's one – I. He seems very boring in his first couple of misses, I felt, or at least like he wasn't, he was, and it, it becomes clear as he get as the, his reports recur throughout the, the novel that he was, that he's been holding back and he's been holding out. 
Um, and now as it moves along, he's willing to say more and more and more. But I mean, he has a very interesting sense of heaven and hell uh, in, no, in no small part because he doesn't necessarily feel that heaven is orderly or pristine, um, that it might actually just be raw emotion. It might be passion. It might be all these other, all these things. And those are all the things that the Menezes cut themselves off from that in being rigid in being cut off from the world, that that's the sin. The sin there is not that they have pride, or maybe it is to a certain degree, a form of pride, but the, 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 greater the active part of the sin is that they are not of the world and as humans as people they should be part of the world and in being part of the world they will fail they will do wrong they will make mistakes but that is part of what they are called to do and then to seek the forgiveness and seek clear like seek sucker for those failures for that because they are human and their rigidity, their their way of being has deprived them of their humanity. And that's probably a far greater sin than a lot of what other folks, um, including Nina and Andre, uh, get up to. Yeah. I, you know, I think it it's a really, I, I don't know that I've read a novel that kind of looks at, looks at sin as being um, a product of this immutability that they won't, they refuse to let life in, as you said, to, to, um, to live, to feel emotions, to, to take some risks, to go out into the world, um, to really live and therefore their inability to, to change and their, walling themselves off in this house is really the the root of their sin and the root of their ungodliness. A lot of his conversation centers around um, Anna's contribution to the novel. Anna writes letters, writes confessions to Father Justino. And it you don't really get the sense that outside of maybe what is what they're supposed to do as this, you know, this rich family that they're that the Menezes are especially religious in in any real sense. So Anna reaching out like that, um, and her sense of God and faith is very complicated. Um, and Father Justino is in some ways. He is at moments left uh, dumbstruck by what she says, but also by what her thought process is, which I don't know. He's he very much sounds and feels like a parish priest, like a country priest, like someone who is who is seeing to this, you know, tending ministry to the souls of people whom he very much cares about and is trying to guide them on their terms as best he can towards what he thinks what what he thinks is 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 the right way to live is is godly is a way to seek absolution for your sins but there's a a very strong undercurrent rejecting um faith throughout the novel as expressed by a number of uh well both both rejecting faith but also finding um faith and grace and beauty in um unexpected ways too i mean it's 
this is this is this is such an impressive novel. Like it is such a complete, complete work and world unto itself. It's it's amazing. Another big question: What do you think about the theory that Nina is the personification of the house, and what does that mean? Because she's she she is an outsider, but we see her, and that opening scene is really. Um, kind of powerful, not because, just because we learn that, oh my God, this is a, this is a novel about incest, but, but because Andre, you know, approaches her and holds her and kisses her and she smells like death and she's rotting and she's like become a very kind of physically disgusting thing. And the house is kind of the same kind of processes seem to be happening and have been happening over time with the house. So was Nina the downfall of the house or was the house going to fall down anyway? I think it was more a, a, a parallelism. I mean, I think her arrival, her arrival made the, um, the end of the Menezes clan as a presence in, in this community much more apparent, much more visible, much more shocking. Um, but it was going to happen. And um, in the same way that the house was, it, it was inevitable. And, and and when when they find out, when Valdo finds out and Nina finds out how sick she is, uh, the doctors who talk to her say, you should have sought treatment sooner. There's nothing to be done. And in many respects, that's what's taking place to this house, to this family. The rot was too deep. There was nothing that you could do to save that house at that point. So I think I think it's much more of a, a, a parallel parallel action. But the pyrotechnics that take place around it would not have been the same. Would not have existed had Nina um, not entered into um, that sphere. Yeah, and kind of again going to this scene at her deathbed, um, she kind of sticks the final nail in the Menendez coffin because her death brings out the entire community, which is exactly what this family has never wanted. Um, there's kind of like this death vigil that happens because she's become such a sensation in the village, in part because the family's lived in such seclusion and kind of has a mystique to it. But they've caught glimpses of Nina coming to and from the train station. And she's become kind of like a, a persona that's like greater than she's, she's like a movie star to them almost. And so, um, her death, the, the irony of it is that, you know, she finally dies. And so maybe you could say that her bad influence on this house to the extent that she, it was one, uh, and on this family has now ended because she's dead. But it's when she dies, the entire village and the surrounding villages come out to like, you know, to kind of just check out the family, check out her body, just to kind of be, um, I guess, nosy, interested neighbors, which uh, the Menendezes have tried and succeeded for the most part in keeping everyone out. I mean, it was Demetrio's worst nightmare. Um, he was, and she died of cancer. And the time frame's, I guess, a little squishy. Um, 
not especially. It's clear, clearly the 20th century. There is electricity. There are cars. The book was published in, I think, 1959, 1958. So I would guess that maybe like the final events are placed maybe 10, 15 years prior to that. But a few characters mention the idea that cancer may or may not be contagious. The doctors aren't totally sure. But Demetrio is convinced they're contagious. So he wants to throw away all of the clothes and he he's gathering up all of her clothes to get rid of them. Um, like the body's not even cold and he's trying to get everything that was Nina out of the house as quickly as possible to the point where um, Baldo attacks him and like punches and slightly beats up his brother, which is in front of other people. Like all these things are all of these, this family for whom they've heard nothing for the longest time, this goddess shows up as if from on high, um, like just this interruption into the space rumors start abounding about what's taking place. Suddenly they're the talk of the town in a way they probably haven't been in a generation or two. And then as she dies, they see up close this family and this house that they haven't seen in so long and how, how empty and broken it is. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a hell of an ending. So there's a real twist to the ending and I'm not sure we should give it away, Tom. What do you think? There's one element I do want to give away. Okay. Um, and that's Timoteo and why, why Nina meant so much to him and what she offered his life. Cause I think that's one of the redemptive qualities to this novel um, or at least to the characters in this novel. God, we need um, some redemption. So, so, so go for so, it. So, okay. So, so little, little bit, little bit of a spoiler. So if you don't want, you know, if you want to get through the full 591 pages and before you hear this part, by all means, but uh, Nina does have an affair with Alberto. Um, that is not a surprise. That's not really a big spoiler that happens about that's established about a half, two thirds of the way through that that did take place. But one of the more moving elements of this novel for me is that at Nina's funeral, uh, Timoteo leaves his room um, for the first time in decades, likely. And he has to be carried in because he's just become so large, he can't even move any longer. Um, and we get this section that is from his memoirs. Um, and initially, we see this from Valdo's perspective. And after almost doing a, a strange dance uh, across the room and slapping Nina's dead body, Timoteo falls over having suffered what seems to be a stroke. But from Timoteo's perspective, it kind of moves back and forth in time. And one of the things that comes out is that Timoteo's room and Nina's room were next to each other. And looking out his window every morning, he saw this beautiful man put flowers on Nina's window. And this is Alberto. And this is him seeing Alberto for, and because he's been in this room, not doing anything, there's no reason for Alberto to come closer. This is him seeing him for the first time and it's love at first sight. And he, he knows her secret and he keeps it. And he knows that there was an affair and he knows that all this, but it's fine with him because he gets to see Alberto up until Alberto's death. And for this maltreated 
damaged person to have that sort of a moment of beauty and and grace. Like, I mean, the religious elements and the religious discussion taking place in this novel are, are really interesting, but like, this is a moment of grace for Timoteo for that to take place and for, for Cardoso to like save it for like our last interaction with Timoteo is, I mean, it's profound. It's beautiful. And I, yeah, I, I really, really loved that moment. And there are larger things that are revealed that we will not go into, but, um, my, I, I was already firmly convinced that this is one of the great novels I'm going to encounter. Um, the tenderness with which that was handled confirmed for me. Like, and also, just to say, the, the depiction of Timoteo could be perhaps read as a little bit worrisome. You know, like he's clearly queer. He's clear, like there are clearly other things happening with his family, like treating him like this. But then he becomes this physical monster like it, it it can give you some pause right as you're reading it and gave me a little bit of pause and i didn't think that was the case but this very much just brought home how being a menezes what it had done to damage this person but he still had the opportunity to feel something feel something beyond that uh what we keep saying which is such a great description laurie that tomb that he was raised in and that he continued to live in. Yeah. I mean, he's a manifestation of the disfigurement of the, the kind of emotional psychological disfigurement of the family, you know um, what they've done to each other, what they've done to him, what their jealousy and, and mean spiritedness has done to to Nina and to Andre. I mean, yeah, I think that, I think the fact that we, we come to learn that underneath it all, Timoteo is, is a real human being, um, is you're right, a very redeeming quality of the book. And I'm, I'm really glad that you brought it up. Yeah. And, and, and he sees Andre in that funeral moment. And sees Andre and thinks of thinks of someone else. So, uh, Timoteo Timoteo gets Timoteo led a very seemingly lonely life, and maybe maybe he was mad, and that helped protect him from some of the elements of that, some of the harsher elements of that. But Timoteo also got to got to feel love, and that I think is I don't know. I I, I think. I think sometimes authors don't do right by their by their creations by by their characters, and I think Cardoso did did a pretty solid job for uh, Timoteo there. Yeah, there's there's some beauty in that in that human being for sure. You always like to ask um, what other novels or works that we've encountered this one reminds us of. Any any titles come to mind? Dear God. Um... I mean, I think The Leopard by Lampedusa, like in terms of portraying a um, a noble family in decline, uh, fighting back again. Not interestingly, in The Leopard, there's more of a fight back taking place against against change. Um, here, this is just a, a capitulation. Um, there, I think, I think there's that. Um, I think in terms of some of the uh, that's like that's like guys the main one that comes to mind. I was going to maybe say. 
in terms of some of the the religious conversation, but I don't think it's heavy enough for it to really work. Maybe the power and the glory, but that's such a bleak novel. And this this one, as dark as it is in in many respects, isn't. I wouldn't call this a bleak novel. Um, and I mean, the power and the glory is supposed to be uplifting in a certain sense. God knows why or how, but um, yeah, I think I think the leopard is is the main one that that comes to mind for me. Um, maybe the House of Mist by Maria Luisa Bombal in terms of just sort of setting to a certain degree. Um, I don't know that but, novel. Yeah, it's uh, she was Chilean. Um, I think it was Borges that referred to her as the mother of us all. Um, early, you know, modern writer. I mean, it, it has some of the feel of Wuthering Heights, but with a 20th century Chilean, I think she's Chilean, Chilean perspective. Um, uh, it's it's quite good. Um, but th that's more kind of setting than it is anything else. I mean, this is just, I don't know. I think, I think it's one of those, those unique ones. I mean, I think, I think it has, it has so much, so much going on in here and its construction is so particular, like just the, the different voices and how they come in. Um, it's, I'd be very interested and I know there really isn't anything else of his translated, but I'd be very interested to, to read any of his others and see if the, these are of a, they're of a piece with this or if this is like a true, true one-off. What about you? What else jumps out? Anything jump out at you? Well, I'll say with respect to um, your observation, I think it is weird that this is the only book of his that's been translated. He wrote a lot, according to Wikipedia. <laughs> um, and, you know, I'm, I'm so happy that um, that Open Letter found this book for us. Um, or maybe Margaret Joel Costa did. I don't know who initially said this deserves to be, you know, translated and published in English because it's a fantastic work. Um, but thank you for that. Um, and yeah, I really wish we would have some more of his stuff translated. You know, if you read that article that I wrote for Full Stop, I guess it's all there in terms of the comparisons that I would draw. Um, for the the gothic and the kind of a, a house and a family um uh kind of uh, uh a family line or just kind of a, a family name destroying itself absalom absalom by by faulkner comes to mind and you know as i said benjamin no Mosier in his introduction brings up faulkner and um yeah, and I think that the the multi-vocality of it, you know, we have all these different voices kind of recounting the same or similar story, I think is is reminiscent of that. You know, Bundenbrooks by Thomas Mann, you know, just this house that's slowly decaying and in part it's a reflection of the decline of morals of the family. But it ain't nothing like this in terms of decline of morals. I mean, I mean that book seems altogether proper compared to some of the stuff that happens in this one. And then the other comparison that I um, I drew was to um, Raskolnikov and Crime and Punishment, just because of um, you know there is this I think between Anna, Father Justino, 
um, there's a lot of talk about about sin and and uh, kind of wanting to understand, you know, why why things happen in the world in a way that that sometimes you try to seek redemption and and you you can't quite accomplish it. So yeah, I guess those are the three that I but I would love it if listeners have some suggestions. I would love to get some ideas about some really great gothic novels like this, particularly gothic novels in translation. Um, you know, I think that there's I feel like more contemporary novels right now kind of look at gothic elements in terms of body horror and some other things much more so than um, just this old kind of creepy, dark house that's not that's not haunted in one sense, but is haunted just by its legacy and the memories of the people that are still living in it. Any suggestions along those lines would be absolutely fantastic. Um, and as you're mentioning Faulkner, the only the have you read Go Down Moses? I'm not. Faulkner? I'm not. Okay, that's that's one that I feel like a lot of people haven't done, and it's probably my favorite of his. And when I read your article and you mentioned the Faulkner bit, um, that's I think it's more in its construction. It reminds me a lot of what Cardoso was doing here um, as well. So. Definitely check out Go Down Moses too. I think. Thanks for the suggestion. But yeah, yeah, this is, I'm so happy that you made me read this huge thing that I've been afraid to read for so long. Um, that's just been staring at me as I've moved house a couple times. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm thrilled. So thanks very much for this suggestion, Lori. This was, this was an absolute banger. Yeah. Goes down easy. <laughs> All right. Take care, Lori. All right. Thanks, Tom. Mm-hmm. 